Well, who in God's name would have thought we would be here at this moment with this president? Me. I did. I did, Mr. Vice President. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Tried to warn you. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, and 99.5 in Ridgecrest in China Lake, California. We're also heard up in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast and Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, you can hear us on WLRI. On Maui, Hawaii, or we're on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, tune in to WGRN. In Palinville, New York, it's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, we're on WPRR. In New Orleans, on WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Coming up, President Obama's Former chief economist at the Department of Labor will join us to discuss that, you know, uh, there are so many things that this administration is doing that would otherwise be just enormous scandals, firing scandals for any other administration that are uh, getting dangerously ignored because, you know, everything else he does is so awful. Uh, anyway, it, it's it's not enough, apparently, that Republicans in the Trump administration who used to pretend that they were against income redistribution. Remember that? That was darling. Uh, they are already moving hundreds of billions of dollars from the poor and middle class to the rich and the corporations. Well, now they are plan- planning to steal tip money off the table for waiters and waitresses. Seriously, they actually have a new plan that does exactly that and and redistributes that waitress's tip, their tip money to the owners of the restaurant. I'm serious about this. We'll be talking to the former top uh, economist at the Department of Labor uh, about what appears to be just another billion dollar scam at the expense of workers. You know, the forgotten men and women that Donald Trump pretended he wanted to help. At their expense and uh, in favor of the right of businesses to literally take money from them. This, of course, is just uh, one of the things 
going on that uh, too few are noticing because it's it's receiving so little coverage amidst all of the other political madness. And as if that's not pathetic enough, the Department of Labor, when they opened uh, this rule up to the public for comment, as they must do by law, well, they failed. They failed to let anyone know about their own economic analysis of this uh, of this measure and how it would uh, frankly steal billions from those so-called forgotten men and women that Trump pretended to uh, to run on supporting. Oh, wait. So you're telling me that the Trump administration Department of Labor is hiding data that doesn't make their case for them? Are you going to start with sarcasm this early <laughs> in the program? Apparently, yes, apparently because so. apparently hiding yeah. data is what the Trump administration does because the data doesn't support yep. them. And that's why I say if this was any other administration, I mean, you know, we would have a congressional hearings on these things. Uh, people would be fired for these things. In any event, we'll be joined uh, momentarily by Heidi Sheerholtz to explain what the Trump administration is attempting to get away with here as you and I and the corporate media are all being... Uh, you know, outraged about his various idiotic tweets and so much more. Uh, people are being hurt, but as long as we're talking about money and the government, let's start with some. Uh, let's, let's start with some context on this gigantic, three hundred to five hundred billion, depending on who you read. Uh, this spending package that was approved by Republicans and Democrats late last week to keep the government open and operating. Only, by the way, only until March 23, when we're going to have one of these uh, government uh, shutdown fights all over again. That bill that did pass last week in both the House and Senate and was signed by Donald Trump hikes both military and domestic spending. But military spending, of course, by much more than domestic spending. Matt Iglesias uh, from Vox.com pointed out uh, over the weekend on the Twitters uh, some context here, some context on this Pentagon spending hike. Recall that Bernie Sanders wanted to uh, limit the cost of his free college uh, tuition plan uh, so that he would he would make uh, states would have to cover one third of the tab and um, and the feds would spend some forty seven billion dollars per year on this plan. That's how he was going to keep it fairly conservative. It would only cost $47 billion for the feds, and the states would cover the rest, the, uh, the other one-third. But a more ambitious bill would cover everything. The, the, f the federal government could pay for everyone's uh, college tuition. At public, public college. Public yeah. college tuition, right? Uh, and every year, that would be taken care of by the government. How much would that cost? That would cost $70 billion. Just... 70 billion. Now, I know 70 billion might seem like a lot, but remember, uh, the uh, they, they just the, the both the Republicans and the Democrats just went added some 300 billion or 500 billion, depending on how you look at it, uh, to the federal deficit. And of that, the Department of Defense just got 80 billion. They got 80 billion for next year alone. And remember, Bernie Sanders' plan to send everyone to college for free would only cost $70 billion if the federal government paid for all of it. So when you hear Republicans and the media and, yes, Democrats claiming that Bernie Sanders' ideas for things like free public 
college tuition and medical care for all, that these are just outrageous proposals. We could never afford that. Who's going to pay for that? Where does that money come from? Well, just keep in mind that we just handed $80 billion more to the military-industrial complex for next year alone instead of sending your kid to college next year and everybody else's kids to college next year, everyone else that you know, to sending them to college next year for free because the, the most powerful, the largest military in the world apparently needs still more money. And we're all going to couch that in finally taking care of our great men and women in the military, as Donald Trump has been doing uh, since that passed last week. Those are those are apparently the American priorities. Those priorities, I guess, uh, you know, that's how we make America great again. More wars or at least spending for more of them. In the meantime, on Monday, Donald Trump unveil, unveiled a four point four trillion dollar budget for next year. Four point four trillion dollars that heralds an era of $1 trillion-plus federal deficits, and unlike the plan he, rele he released last year for the budget, unlike that, it never comes close to even pretending to uh, promise a balanced ledger, even after 10 years, as the one he put out last year did. They've stopped all the pretending. So, hey, Tea Partiers, uh, Freedom Caucus people, Trump supporters, do you feel duped yet by any chance, or do you simply like being played by uh, played for suckers? Man. Apparently, remember back in like 2009 when uh, Republicans were screaming about putting a balanced budget amendment into the Constitution. Isn't that darling? Isn't that darling? Yeah, they used to tell you that that Democrats do nothing but tax and spend. So we have to change the Constitution. We have to stop those wild Democrats from spending your money. Whereas, you know, Republicans, they believed in uh, so-called fiscal conservatism and responsible spending and federal budgets. Remember that? That was darling, too. And you, dear Trump supporter, you bought it. Literally. Now, of course, deficit spending is uh, not a bad idea at all in and of itself, despite what you have been lied to about, particularly when the economy needs a boost, which Republicans tried to prevent from happening when the economy did need a big boost after the collapse of the global markets in 2007 and 2008 under the previous Republican president. But now that the economy is finally doing well after eight years of its Obama recovery. It's exactly the wrong time to cut taxes for millionaires and billionaires and blow a one and a half trillion dollar hole in the federal budget, as that tax bill did, and then add to it another three to five hundred billion um, that was uh, passed in that uh, spending bill last week. But Republicans, uh, they just decided to do that anyway, blow a hole in the deficit even now, that they control every branch of government. Do you feel like a sucker yet, Trump supporters? Guess not. AP reports the growing deficits reflect in great part the impact of last year's tax overhaul, which is proposed to cause federal tax revenue to plummet. And Monday's uh, budget submission from the Trump administration does not yet reflect last week's two-year bipartisan $300 billion pact that wholly rejects 
Trump's plans to slash domestic agencies. So that's one and a half trillion lost thanks to the tax cuts, another 300 billion at least in new federal spending under a Republican-controlled House, Republican-controlled Senate, and Republican-controlled White House. Just in case you're keeping score at home. Trump's own pr- proposed budget that was uh, published on uh, on Monday sets out that tax revenue tax revenue he admits will plummet by 3.7 trillion dollars over the next decade relative to last year's baseline estimates that's in the budget that's the that's the budget projection that Donald Trump himself put out He's requesting a record $686 billion for the Pentagon. That's a 13% increase from the 2017 budget enacted uh, last May. In remarks on Monday, Trump focused on the spending increases that he favors rather than the deficits that he and other Republicans have pledged to reduce. Trump said, we're going to have the strongest military we've ever had. In this budget, we took care of the military like it's never been taken care of before. Now, uh, you know, we weren't, I guess, spending nearly enough on the military before. We were shortchanging Americans uh, who need help in the military. I don't I don't think so. The Americans we were shortchanging are the ones who, who you know, who are driving on our, our uh, crumbling roads and bridges going to our crumbling schools, trying to get into uh, to college and universities, trying to get health care. But, you know, the most important thing to remember here, uh, because it's not even clear if Trump knows it based on his, his statement that, you know, in this budget we took care of the military like it's never been taken care of before. It's not even clear that Trump understands that they didn't take care of the military like it's never been taken care of before. This is a budget proposal. It has not been passed. It has not been adopted. And uh, like the one that he submitted last year that was completely ignored by Congress, this one will pretty much largely be ignored uh, completely as well. AP reports the spending spree, along with last year's tax cuts, has the deficit moving sharply higher with Republicans in control of Washington. Trump's plan sees a uh, 2019 deficit of $984 billion. That's by Trump's own estimates, although $1.2 trillion is uh, the more plausible uh, number, according to people who know this stuff, particularly after last week's budget pact. And $90 billion worth of disaster aid is all tacked on on top of those tax cuts. That's more than double the 2019 deficit that the administration had promised just last year. This is already twice the deficit they had promised. Surprise! Last year. Yay, surprise. And this is after getting what they wanted in that budget deal, getting what they wanted on those tax cuts. All told, the new budget uh, from the president sees accumulating deficits of $7.2 trillion over the coming decade. Trump's plan last year projected a 10-year shortfall of only $3.2 trillion, but now more than double that. Last year, Trump's uh, budget projected just a slight surplus after a decade a decade of his plan, but as you'll recall, they had used a, a, a budgeting, a, 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 a trick to count the same money twice within the same proposal. The White House used double counting 
uh, a 10-year, $2 trillion surge in revenues that they claimed would come from the economic benefits of tax reform. They included that twice in order to claim the, uh, the, the shortfall would only be $3.2 trillion in 10 years. Uh, now they can't do that anymore. Now that the, the tax reform has passed, they can't use that same math trick, and the Trump plan doesn't even come close to balancing the budget. The 2019 budget was originally designed to double down on last year's proposals to slash foreign aid, to slash the Environmental Protection Agency, and things like home heating assistance and other non-defense programs funded uh, by Congress each year. Yes, more money for the military, but we have to cut home heating assistance. It's almost like they are sitting down and trying to figure out how can we hurt the poorest Americans the most? Yep. In his uh, message accompanying the, uh, the, uh, the budget document, he said, In one year of working together, we have laid the foundation for a new era of American greatness. America is back to winning again. A great spirit of optimism continues to sweep across our nation. I must have missed that wave. Uh, in a preview of uh, the uh, the budget release on Monday, the White House on Sunday focused on Trump's one, and this shouldn't even be called this, Trump's $1.5 trillion plan for the nation's crumbling infrastructure. More on that in a moment. Uh, they also focused on a request for $23 billion for border security, $18 billion for a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, and money for detention beds for detained immigrants. That's also part of the budget because America cannot be great, apparently, without a lot of people in prison shoring up our private prison industrial complex, I guess. Oh, and without spending billions on the border wall that Mexico apparently won't be paying for, we, we can't be great. Surprise! So, uh, while his plan last year would uh, reprise, uh, while his plan this year would rep reprise last year's attempt to scuttle the Obamacare health law and sharply cut back both Medicare and the Medicaid program for the elderly, the poor, and the disabled, Trump's allies on Capitol Hill have signaled there is no real interest in tackling hot button issues like health issues during an election year. The plan, and why not? Why not? If that's what they ran on, if they're running on uh, getting the government under control, uh, killing Obamacare, they want to cut Medicare and Medicaid, why wouldn't they run on that? Oh, because the voters don't want it. Only they and their, their corporate sponsors want it, apparently. They hope that you're stupid and you won't remember that part. The plan also reprises uh, proposals from last year's uh, Trump budget to cut student loan subsidies. Got to do that. Reduce pension benefits for federal workers. Got to get rid of that. Cut food stamps for people who need food. Trump plans to uh, uh, promises to um, or his plan promises three percent growth, continuing low inflation, low interest yields on U.S. Treasury bills, despite a flood of new borrowing underestimates the mounting cost of financing the government's $20 trillion-plus debt. Many economists are likely to find the prospects for such a rosy scenario implausible, AP reports politely. You know they wanted to say laughable. 
yeah. not implausible. The White House is putting a uh, focus this year on Trump's long overdue plan to boost spending on the nation's crumbling infrastructure. The plan would put up $200 billion in federal money over the next 10 years in order to leverage $1.5 trillion in infrastructure spending, relying on state and local governments and the private sector to contribute the bulk of the funding. Critics contend the infrastructure plan will fail to reach its goals without more federal support. Proposals to streamline the permitting process as a way to reduce the cost of projects have already generated opposition from environmental groups. So Desi Doyen, he's talking about a one and a half trillion dollar infrastructure plan, but only 200 billion of that is coming from federal money. They're counting on the private sector. Why would the private sector want to get in on this? Uh, you can explain that and you can explain uh, how, I mean, this idea of, of, of streamlining permitting, is that in any way going to cover the, the cost of these projects, taking away from the... I guess the Environmental Protection Agency no. who looks at these projects and <laughs> okay, so yes, it would it would cut the overall timing of a project and the overall cost of a project. But what it does is it takes out the Clean Air and Clean Water Act regulations that require that all infrastructure projects that receive federal dollars of any kind follow these specific regulations and ensure that they're not going to impact local residents either right now or 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the line when there are also people who will be living next to these new infrastructure projects. And the idea of streamlining permitting also means that local residents, local communities, local governments will have even less say than they already do now about what happens in their local areas. You had a, uh, a popular tweet over the weekend, uh, Des, at your uh, Green News Report uh, Twitter account saying Trump proposes a paltry $200 billion, $200 billion for infrastructure. Um, and that's not paltry, by the way. I mean, that's a lot of money. But it's $200 billion over 10 years. It's still a lot of money, but not nearly the amount of money that... Oh, I that mean, an actual oh, yeah. for rebuilding our infrastructure are more like what one, two, three trillion dollars. Right. since the, we haven't uh, done it for the so American long. Society of Engineers gives all of our infrastructure, our bridges, our roads, uh, a, a, a D grade, a D minus grade, and they they estimated, I think, two years ago that it would cost about a trillion dollars to just bring up the current infrastructure we have, like our airports, up to just a minimal level of, of functionality and safety. You said that uh, he so he proposes this uh, money for infrastructure to magically fund a, a one and a half trillion dollars in projects because he thinks you're too stupid to remember that he and GOP just gave a deficit exploding one and a half trillion dollar tax to cut. corporations tax cut tax cut to uh, to corporations and the rich exactly see it's not really a one point five trillion dollar plan it is at best a two hundred billion dollar plan as you mentioned it's going to be cut from other programs. Yeah like food stamps so kids aren't going to get to eat so that the Trump administration can try to attract some private investor to go into some sort of revenue-generating project that doesn't actually do much good for the local community. And it's not just cutting uh, from, uh, you know, food stamps so kids can eat. Right, uh, that's Michael just Linden, one. Michael, well, Michael, specifically, Michael Linden uh, from Roosevelt University uh, is an economy wonk over there. He criticized some of the headlines that were describing this as a so-called $1.5 trillion infrastructure plan. 
uh, saying that such headlines are, quote, budget illiterate, that Trump's budget will include $200 billion, not $1.5 trillion, in federal infrastructure spending. But that, that $200 billion, will actually be offset by a 20% reduction, he says, in base funding for the Departments of Transportation and Energy. So, all told, he says that Trump is basically proposing a $0 infrastructure plan because that $200 billion is coming from uh, projects that were already working in the Department of Transportation. Exactly. So remember that in general, in you know, up until... Trump, uh, the federal government would put up 80% of the cost of infrastructure projects. What Trump is proposing is to put up only 5 to 10% of these projects. So where does the money get made up? That money gets made up by state and local governments. They're expected to raise this revenue, and they can do that by a number of ways. They can raise your taxes. Oh, they'll do that, sure. Of course, because, you know, hey, they've just got nothing but money lying around. Well, I know, that's the thing. Many of these these federal, you know, the federal government, unlike the federal government, uh, these states have to produce a balanced budget each year, many of them. Many of them have balanced budget amendments. And so where are they supposed to come up with all this extra money for the federal government, for these federal projects? Uh, In Kansas, for example, where we've, you know, talked a lot about uh, their, their... Thankfully, now former Governor Sam Brownback, he cut taxes to the bone so badly that a court had to order them to restore funding to schools. Since spending on schools and roads and bridges, etc., had had been slashed under the, the massive tax cuts in Kansas because they couldn't afford to pay for them. So where's Kansas Where's this you know, money going to be coming from without raising taxes on Kansas? Uh, in case you've forgotten, that's where money comes from, yeah. raising taxes. Also, it can come from selling off assets. And that's the point here. It's exactly. not gonna, They're not going to raise the taxes. They're, they're going to try yeah. to trick states and local governments into selling off your public assets or privatizing your utilities like your water and sewage systems and putting private for-profit companies in control of that. So they'll get the revenue. And in practice, we have seen over and over and over again, when you put a private corporation in charge of a crucial utility like your water, that they end up taking the revenue from that and pouring it back into themselves, not into upgrades or repairs. So Paul Krugman of the New York Times, he says, it's really not a plan to borrow $1 trillion and spend it on these projects. What it is is a way to get private investors to buy your public assets. And once they're bought and you no longer have control of them, they are very difficult to get back again. So you can expect a whole bunch of toll roads, toll bridges in Kansas and all of the other states if Trump's infrastructure uh, scheme moves forward as currently planned. All of this while Trump slashes other domestic spending, while adding huge money for more wars that we uh, you know, more wars than we could possibly fight, even if we wanted to. And boy, do we apparently uh, for as far as the eye can see. But, you know, fix a bridge so it doesn't collapse and people die. No money for that. Food stamps uh, so hungry families can eat. And we ain't got money for that. Health care for people who need it. Sorry, Grandma, you're on your own. Democrats today are uh, obviously blasting this proposal. Um, minority Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer called the blueprint astounding, especially after the GOP passed that tax cut, that $1.5 trillion tax cut. 
Um, he says, if Americans want a picture of who President Trump works for, the combination of the tax bill and this budget makes it crystal clear. He's for the rich and powerful at the expense of the middle class. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, the ranking member of the Budget Committee, said Trump's request is morally bankrupt and bad economic policy. He says this is a budget for the billionaire class, for Wall Street, for corporate CEOs, for defense contractors and for the wealthiest people in this country, it must be defeated, said Sanders. And as if redistributing hundreds of billions of dollars from the poor and the middle class to the corporations and the wealthy while slashing programs meant to help the poor and the middle class, isn't, as if that isn't enough, now the administration is quite literally trying to steal tips off the tables of men and women who work as waiters for a living. And they're trying to hide how many billions of dollars uh, in money stolen from those so-called forgotten men and women. They're trying to hide how much money that actually accounts to. President Obama's chief economist at the Department of Labor joins us next to explain the fairly outrageous scam that, like so many others that they're pulling off, is not getting nearly the attention it deserves by the corporate media. That's coming up next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. You can treat her right, or you can steal the tips off her table. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The uh, Democratic-leaning Americans for Tax Fairness puts out a statement on Donald Trump's proposed budget today say, saying, Donald Trump has proposed a federal budget that steals from working families to pay for his massive $1.5 trillion tax cut that largely benefits the wealthy and big corporations. He's taking away health care from seniors, food from families, college loans for the next generation, and support for people with disabilities to benefit the fortunate few. But that is not all the Donald Trump administration is trying to do. Uh, according to Newsweek, President Donald Trump's Department of Labor wants to give restaurant owners greater control over pooled tips earned by waiters and waitresses. But reportedly, agency officials at the Department of Labor purposely hid evidence that shows this rule change could take billions from restaurant workers and give the money to their bosses instead. The Labor Department announced in December that it would work to undo an Obama-era regulation, because that's what they do, 
that uh, that had stopped employers from collecting and redistributing workers' tips. However, the owners of those restaurants wanted to if the workers earned the federal minimum wage of $7.25 per hour. Waiters, uh, waitstaff, servers are exempt from the federal minimum wage because they receive tips, so they often make far less than the paltry $7.25 federal minimum wage. And now the Trump administration appears to be working very hard and, as it turns out, very dishonestly to take away that tip money as well and redistribute it to business owners. Restaurant industry lobbying groups have long fought for the repeal of this Obama-era rule in order, they say, to help workers such as busboys. But studies show that it is unlikely these workers were receiving redistributed tips before the rule. Worse, there's no way to know because senior officials at the Labor Department apparently withheld studies showing that workers could lose billions under this plan and that restaurant managers and owners would likely be the ones to benefit from the rule change, according to uh, Bloomberg, which first reported the fact that the Department of Labor was withholding this study. They discovered that the department had hidden an internal analysis that showed exactly that, that showed that, yes, restaurant managers and owners were likely to be the ones to benefit here amid this rulemaking public comment period which ended on Wednesday. Experts say the omission of serious analysis undermines the Labor Department's entire process. When the proposed rule came out, it was stunning that there was no economic analysis in it, says Heidi Sheerholtz, who was chief economist at the Labor Department under President Barack Obama. She is now director of policy at the Economic Policy Institute, where she leads the Perkins Project on workers' rights and wages and focuses on labor, income and wage inequality and the effects of economic policies on low and middle income families. Heidi Sheerholtz holds a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Michigan, and she joins us today from Washington, D.C., where I'm told she commutes on a bicycle and is also a backyard beekeeper. Heidi Sheerholtz, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for having me. You got my whole CV there. That's true. I know, and I'm kind of dying to ask you about the backyard beekeeping, but I know (laughs) time is short, so we'll have to hold that until next time. But I'm I'm sort of having trouble wrapping my brain, frankly, around this entire story because it seems extraordinary, even for the Trump administration, in a number of ways. Among them, uh, really just how petty this seems to be in taking money, billions of dollars, in fact, from those so-called forgotten men and women that the Trump administration claims to be fighting for, but also the way they appear to be gaming the rulemaking process itself. I know your organization, the Economic Policy Institute, created your own analysis of what this rule would or wouldn't mean for both workers and restaurant owners. But before we discuss what you found, I want to ask you about the Department of Labor's hidden analysis here. Do we know what they found in that secret analysis, I guess, and have they offered any reason why they did not include that analysis when asking for public comment about this rule? They, we don't know the exact number, but we do know that it is in the billions that the Department of Labor estimated would be transferred from workers mm-hmm. to employers if this rule is finalized. 
they, that was the, what was reported by Bloomberg, and mm-hmm. the department has not denied it. So I think we can be pretty safe. It's pretty safe to say that the number was in the billions. Um, and when you talk about this as as sort of being petty, it's it would what it would do is there is you know there was longstanding practice mm-hmm. by the DOL that interpreted tips as belonging to the workers who earned them. That was codified in a 2011 rule that just said very clearly, you know what? Mm-hmm. Employers, you can't take tips. They belong to the workers who earned them. This, what this, the proposed rule that DOL does is it just rescinds those regulations. It says employers can do whatever they want with the, with workers' tips as long as they pay workers the minimum wage. And the, the, the sort of petty part of this is just this has been a dream of the National Restaurant Association, which mm-hmm. is the big industry group for restaurants, forever. You know, a lot of revenue comes into restaurants in the form of tips. Mm-hmm. Restaurant owners have wanted to get their hands on that for forever, and they finally found an administration that will prioritize the needs of, you know, corporate interests, big Restaurant chains who mm-hmm. are who are supported by the National Restaurant Association over their workers who work for tips. And as I was researching this story, I'm I'm kind of surprised. So there is no law against this sort of thing. This is simply just a rule uh, that the Department of Labor is is able to make. What 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 law is the DOL actually enforcing with this particular uh, regulation that would allow workers tips to be taken from them by their employers? Yep, it is it is it is under the DOL, the Department of Labor's jurisdiction to make a rule like this. So the, what it is is the Fair Labor Standards Act, mm-hmm. which is the act that sets the minimum wage, it sets who's eligible for overtime protections, that sort of thing. What this rule does is it provides some interpretation of, of the Fair Labor Standards Act. It amends the Fair Labor Standards Act to say, to, or I guess in this sense, it just rescinds mm-hmm. the former interpretation that said, you know what, tips belong to the people who earned them. They can't actually be taken by employers. So this is, it's totally legit in the in the sort of rulemaking process. This is under the purview of DOL to do something like this. But this is the key, and, and you talked about this in the beginning, and I think it's really important that there are rules that they have to follow as a part of the rulemaking process, and it includes very clearly that they have to do a very comprehensive cost-benefit analysis. They have to estimate the impacts of, uh, of the rule on workers, on other people who would be affected. Mm-hmm. They did do that. We now know that they did do it, but it looked really bad, and so they tried to bury it. They, they just, the, they, they, instead of actually letting the public know that this worker, that this rule is something that would be mm-hmm. terrible for workers, which their own analysis shows, they just buried it. And yeah. what they said about it was that, ah, oh, there's too much uncertainty. We can't, we don't have the data to do it. And so that's just now revealed as a big lie. <laughs> they actually did do it, and they just buried it. And they, it, they it, hit it. It makes them look bad. Yeah, yep. I, and, and that's what I saw. So I'm, I'm wondering, as the former chief ec- uh, economist at the at the Department of Labor under the Obama administration, 
How would this normally work when you set out to do a, a cost-benefit analysis? And, you know, I, I presume you might get analysis like this that don't necessarily support the rule that you were hoping to make. Uh, would you release that uh, report, that analysis anyway during the rulemaking uh, procedure? Or would it be a matter of saying, well, you know what? Our analysis shows this is a bad idea, so we're not going to change the rule entirely. Yeah, I think that, that the, the way you described it at the end, that that's the way it, it went in my experience at DOL. I was the chief economist there for two and a half years and worked on many, many rules mm -hmm. during that time. Um, it is as soon as the department embarks on a rulemaking process, they get uh, cost-benefit analysis going just in lockstep with that because that's how policymaking should work. They should be getting all the information they can on what the impacts are going to be as the policymaking process goes through so they know, who, you know what, the, what the effects are going to be. So it turns out that is exactly what they did, but they cared so much about giving a big gift to the National Restaurant Association that they are, were willing to propose a rule that would just, like, would literally shift billions of dollars from workers to employers. And this is something that you found uh, with your own group. EPI did your own analysis of this rule, uh, I guess, since the Department of Labor didn't. Uh, what did, uh, what did uh, the Economic Policy Institute find when you guys studied the effects of this rule? We found something that sounds like it was right in line with what DOL found, and it's not surprising, right? Like, I worked at DOL for two and a half years, so I know the kinds of methods mm -hmm. that they use, the kinds of data that we use. I used, we use the same sort of methodology. It's very typical things that DOL typically does, and we found that as a result of this rule, $5.8 billion would be transferred from workers to employers. And another key thing Wait, is How much? $5.8 Yeah, and you know one thing I left out of that is that's $5.8 billion per year. That's on oh. an annual basis. So that just, you know, that adds up quickly yeah. over time. Um, and the other thing that is also a, an important part of this kind of scam DOL is, is running around this rule right now is they are talking about it to everyone as if it's about tip pooling as if it's going to somehow make restaurants more egalitarian because then employers mm -hmm. will take those tips from servers and distribute them to back-of-the-house workers. So if that's what it were really about, they would have a clause in there that says, and you know what, employers can't actually keep the tips. But there is nothing in there that says that employers can't keep the tips. And so it is very clear that this rule is not about tip pooling. It is about giving employers control over tips. You know, so, I, I kind of, when I was, you know, I had used the word a petty in this, and, and I think because I'm sort of thinking it, uh, thinking about it uh, in the way I think I've seen you describe it as tip stealing, as a, a tip stealing rule, and, you know, which seems petty, oh, you're going to take, uh, you know, take a tip from a waiter, but you're right, you're talking about $5.8 billion, and that's just sort of an average, it could be lower, it could be much higher. And when they say they, that this is going to help, oh, it's going to help, uh, we're going to pool the tips uh, and then we can share it with uh, busboys and people back in the, in, the, in the kitchen and all of that. But they 
the fact that they don't say employers can't keep it in and of itself, does that give the game away? And if they did add that to the rule, might that change the way that you and other uh, uh, labor advocates are, are thinking about this? It, it does give the game away to say that to not have a restriction in there mm-hmm. about employers taking tips, because if you think through the economics of it, without that restriction, employers really have zero incentive to pay their back-of-the-house workers any more than they're already paying them. And mm-hmm. the way to think about it is that they have workers in those jobs right now. And so if you think about sort of how markets work, they are already paying those workers what they need to pay them in order to attract workers to those jobs. Mm-hmm. And so when they get like a shiny new revenue stream coming mm-hmm. into their restaurant, it, uh, coming into their pockets right. um, in the form of being able to take workers' tips, they are very unlikely to look at that new source of money and say, ah, I'm going to pay my back-of-the-house workers more because they're already paying them what they need to pay to get them. And so instead, they, I mean, they, they mm-hmm. could do whatever they want with them. They could, they could, you know, add on to their restaurant. They could increase executive pay. They could just line their own pockets. But it is the economics of it suggests that they are going to be extremely unlikely to increase the pay of back-of-the-house workers. Heidi Sheerholtz, you also note in your own public comment in response to this rule that uh, of the $5.8 billion, that's the, the, the sort of the middle ground estimate of what this rule will uh, cost servers, that nearly 80% or $4.6 billion would be taken from women who are working in tips jo- tipped jobs. Uh, this is a disproportional impact on women, you say, due in large part to the fact that women are much more likely to be tipped workers. Uh, are you suggesting that the fact that women uh, will pay the uh, disproportionate cost here might have somehow been tied to the administration's support for this rule? Uh, you know what? I don't, I don't think they... They may not have, even though we know that they did an analysis, mm-hmm. I actually don't know for sure if they did the gender breakdown, although I'm sure they had data that would al- allow them to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the fact that they just are are um, forging ahead with this, despite knowing how bad it is for workers, really is primarily about their far greater interest in supporting corporate interests over those of workers and the sort of the fact that you know it's going to massively disproportionately affect women may be a sort of a bonus but it is um i think the the key reason that this that 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 the trump administration wants to push this rule is because what they value is in restaurant owners over the workers who are who are sort of scraping by working for tips despite what they uh, what they claimed when they ran when Donald Trump ran Heidi I know you're short on time I want to see if I can sneak in just one or two more quick questions here mm-hmm. Uh, it seems remarkable to me that this is the Department of Labor doing this, trying to make things worse for labor itself. But I guess, you know, we can look next door to what's going on at the Environmental Protection Agency uh, to, to disabuse us of, of, of such a, you know, quaint notions that uh, they would be fighting for labor. But is this new rule 
something that anybody ran on in the last election. You know, at least with the EPA, Donald Trump, you know, ran claiming that climate change was a hoax. So we shouldn't be surprised when they act that way. But is is this something that Americans have been calling for less money for waiters? Is this something that came up in any way during the uh, 2016 campaign? No, no, that's a very good point. Nobody, nobody in the administration wants to publicize this. You can tell that because of how, just how closely they tried to mask the fact that this is about employers taking control of tips, they, you know, by trying to talk about it as if it's about tip pooling mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. They just, they do not want people to know what they're doing. And when you look at polling, the vast majority of people, when they learn about this, are just like, oh, no, what are you thinking? This is a terrible thing. It's terrible for workers. It shouldn't happen. Um, it, in the like, hundreds of thousands of comments were submitted to the Department of Labor in the public comment period, which is just part of the rulemaking process. Mm-hmm. The department puts out a proposed rule. The public can comment on it. Then they finalize the rule. Hundreds of thousands of comments were submitted, and the vast majority of those were just like explaining in intimate detail how what a terrible rule this is. So it is unpopular. Um, nobody, you know, they did not, they do not want this publicized that they are so that they have such an anti-worker agenda. Well, I'm happy to, uh, then I'm happy to help publicize it. If they're not willing to post their own analysis along with this rulemaking uh, process, do you have any reason to believe that they would pay attention to any of those hundreds of thousands of comments that were uh, decrying this uh, this proposal? That is a good question. So, um, you know, they've shown a great willingness to ignore, you know, sort of public sentiment on various mm-hmm. many things that they've done so, f- in, so far in the administration. One of the things that is an important part of that public comment period, though, is, is uh, super experts on the rulemaking process writing in and pointing out in explicit detail the number of ways that they violated this, you know, very legal rulemaking process. Mm -hmm. And if they don't account for all of those things as they write the final rule, it makes them legally, it makes the whatever final rule they put through very legally vulnerable. That's, and so it, that's, that's another crucial part of this process. Right, which is sort of my last question. I know that a big group of, of labor supporters, including your group and Demos and labor unions, the steel workers, as well as groups like Oxfam and Public Citizen and so forth, about 20 others have written a letter to Labor Secretary Alex Acosta asking for an explanation here. Have you heard anything back? And uh, I guess playing into that same issue, is, is the Department Act the department's action here is something that you would consider suing them in order to prevent this rule over if necessary uh so we haven't heard anything back they have the on the the day it was revealed that they buried this analysis they made some comments saying oh we'll put an analysis in the final rule um so we're we're just awaiting that final rule um, it is not okay to just put it in the final rule. They need to put an analysis in the proposed rule so the public is able to comment on it. Right. So just putting an analysis in the final rule because their hand was forced, um, it's, it doesn't mean they have satisfied the rulemaking process, so it's still legally vulnerable. So what all I will say is 
I am an economist, not a lawyer, <laughs> so I, I will not personally be suing anyone, but I do. It is just absolutely clear that all the process cells that they've made in this rule will just make, unless they, unless they turn it around and, and, and you know, do a thorough analysis, publish a new proposed rule, let the public comment on it, if they, unless they really sort of start from scratch and, and do a very thorough by-the-book kind of process, they are, the rule will be very legally vulnerable. Well, you may be an economist, not an attorney, but we may have to uh, give you a shout anyway uh, when, not if, but when the lawsuits start flying here. Because I can't, ima- <laughs> can't imagine this goes forward uh, as is. Heidi Shearholtz, senior economist at the Economic Policy Institute, former chief economist at the Department of Labor under President Obama. You can find her work on, uh, on the web at epi.org, and you can and should follow the Economic Policy Institute, on the Twitters, at Economic Policy. Heidi, really appreciate you joining us and helping us to make sense of this today. It's been really fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Okay, uh, oops, peace is breaking out on the Korean Peninsula. Can't have that. We'll cover that story in a little bit more right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. It is war is good for absolutely nothing. The South Korean president has been invited to travel to North Korea following a formal invitation from the country's leader, Kim Jong-un, potentially setting up the first meeting of Korean leaders since 2007. CNN reported over the weekend the invite presented to South Korean President Moon Jae-in by Kim's younger sister, Kim Kim Yo-jong, was delivered during a historic meeting between North and South Korean officials at Seoul's presidential palace on Saturday. Saturday's meeting, which was point of the part of the joint outreach between the two countries during the ongoing Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, South Korea, was the first was the most significant diplomatic encounter between the two sides in more than a decade but could now be surpassed should Moon, the South Korean president, accept Kim's invitation to visit Pyongyang later this year. Moon responded to the invitation by suggesting the two countries should accomplish this by creating the right conditions, adding that talks between North Korea and the U.S. were also needed. Uh, Nothing has been settled on any trip north by the South Korean president, but the verbal message to come out at Uh, a convenient time to come up at a convenient time from the uh, Kim Jong-un delivered by his visiting little sister 
uh, is part of a sudden rush of improving feelings between the rivals during the Winter Olympics. The younger Kim's trip to the South marks the first time that a member of the North's ruling dynasty has visited South Korea since the Korean War, which ended in an armistice, not a peace treaty, but an armistice back in uh, 1953. And uh, such a high-level meeting between President Moon and Kim Jong-un would have been unthinkable even a few months ago. But 2018 has seen an accelerated rapprochement between the two adversaries in the run-up to the Games. Moon has expressed his intention to use the Winter Olympics as a chance to make diplomatic inroads with the North and to restore normalized communications following months of tension on the peninsula. Saturday's lunch meeting follows a brief encounter between the two parties on Friday at the Olympics opening ceremony in which Moon twice shook hands with Kim Yo-jong. The apparent thaw has not been reflected in Washington. However, U.S. President, Vice President Mike Pence sitting just a few seats away in the same opening ceremony VIP booth looked stone-faced says CNN as the scene as the scene unfolded. Uh, he is uh, leading the U.S. delegation to the Olympics, uh, has accused the Pyongyang of using the event for its own ends. <laughs> Sorry. What are you laughing about? <laughs> Just laughing at how Trump's rhetoric appears to be backfiring. Well, it's I know the idea that using it to their own ends, using the Olympics to their own ends, like moving towards peace Outrageous. How dare they do such a thing? No wonder Pence is so clearly against it. He said we will not allow North Korean propaganda to hijack the message and imagery of the Olympic Games. Uh, the message and the imagery of the Olympic Games is supposed to be about peace between world nations. So what the hell is uh, Pence talking about there? Well, uh, you can decide. Uh, there is now some cautious optimism or uh, at least curiosity among the South Koreans. AP reports, even if peace isn't imminent, a summit in Pyongyang between Moon and Kim Jong-un seems better to most than the threats of, uh, of recent months. So uh, no doubt it irritates the hell out of the Trump administration that peace could be breaking out despite them despite their uh, interest uh, in, in really, really, really apparently wanting a new war, preferably a nuclear one, it seems. But don't worry, just as peace was breaking out in Korea over the weekend, Israel had a cross-border clash with Iranian and Syrian forces on the very same day, uh, and that was seen as a sharp escalation of the long-brewing hostilities uh, along its northern frontier. In the space of several hours, Israel downed what it said was an Iranian drone that had penetrated its airspace, then struck back at what it called the command and control center in Syria, from which Iran is said to have launched this drone. An Israeli F-16 returning from the attack then crashed in northern Israel after it came under heavy Syrian anti-aircraft fire. The first Israeli jet to be downed under enemy fire in uh, in decades since 1982. In fact, Israel then responded with strikes against uh, eight Syrian and four Iranian targets in Syrian territory. Strategists and military analysts in Israel say this isn't over. It is just the beginning. So no worries, Trump administration. 
You'll have your new war, and I'm sure you'll be able to play in it as well. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Heidi Sheerholtz of the Economic Policy Institute, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Please, please consider while you're there stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do over your public airwaves every day as long as we can. Uh, drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.